happy for you. I'm let you finish. Hello and welcome to On In 5. I am your boy, Anton Ryder. I'm joined by my friend, Austin Thomas. Hey, my boy. And my friend, Ethan Bonin. Hi, I just recently watched The Death. It's me, Ethan. Hey, great. That's a way to start this thing off. Uh, the death of a bird, not the death of a human. It was really deceptive there for a minute. You just told me the story and I was a little Yeah, shocked. so we are we are back for part three of the band we've been working on since our inception, Guns and Roses. Jesus God. We are ready. This is a lot of shit. We're ready for this to be over. So we're going to knock this Let out. This die. is going to be the final episode on Guns N' Roses, and there's a shitload of information. So this is the very beginning of the recording. This could be like a two and a half hour episode. If it is, that's just fine. Um, I'm sure that you guys will enjoy listening to it the whole time. Listen to it in parts. We- Drink water. Take your time. Go at an even pace. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That is absolutely correct. So when we last left off, the band was working on their third and fourth studio albums, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Axel was taking more control of the band after the Rolling Stones concert. He saw how Mick Jagger was controlling the band, and he also wanted that. And there were some personnel changes with Steven Adler just about to be fired. Yeah, so Axel was really hung up on this whole thing of the Stones, and especially the, the whole having a piano player playing with them, and that. That led to the addition of Darren Dizzy Reed, which um, my book called Almost Heroically Tenured because he basically ended up working with Axel for, I I think, until the end. Yeah, he was in the band actually longer than anyone else besides Axel because everyone else ends up leaving and Dizzy stays in until, I can't remember if he's still in it or not. Uh, We will get to that at the end of the episode, but that's 20 pages away. (laughs) So we will let you know at the end of this episode whether he is or not. He had been asked to join in 1985 when the band was first being created, but he actually injured his hand in a car accident, and so he wasn't able to join then. And then after they saw Rolling Stones, they asked him to be back in. He was about to be evicted and homeless when Axel called him and wanted him to join. So Dizzy let him know about his situation, and so Axel actually got a hold of Niven and got Dizzy an advance paycheck and got him gainful employment with the band. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, he told him that this actually saved his life because he was about ready to just off himself. That's a huge turnaround, yeah. Yeah, Being nearly homeless and then being a part of Guns N' Roses. (laughs) Right, who was the biggest band in the world at this time. So getting that call, yeah, saved his life almost certain. At this point, the band was also informally auditioning new drummers to replace Steven Adler. A couple of these were Martin Chambers from The Pretenders and Adam Maples from Sea of Hags, which I don't know if you guys listened to Sea of Hags, but they're Pretty badass. <laughs> pretty sick. The Pretenders is pretty good. They did uh, yeah. that Chain Gang song. Uh, now we're back on the chain gang. Now we're back on the chain. Oh, okay. uh, if you heard, I'm not, uh, not uh, even I, a I little bit. I know exactly what you mean now. <laughs> One of my coworkers told me that uh, Martin Chambers, he came in to audition and the band really liked him, but his drum set was really extravagant and really big. And the band wanted him to have a more simple drum set. So they're like, 
hey, we really like you, but we need you to tone down your drum set a little bit. Go with something a little bit more simple. And Martin was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem. And he left and just never came back. Like, he was like, I'm not, I'm obviously not going to do that. Why don't you guys just go blow your own selves? Yeah. So he just was like, oh, I'll just keep playing with the pretenders. Um, and so the band told Steven that he could tour with them, but only if he could record the album. Slash and Duff were the most aggressive about getting Steven out of the band. And if you remember from the last episode, Axel actually was very upset with Steven because he didn't play at the award show, but he actually defended Steven during this time. Yeah, he was giving him the most of a second chance. Duff and Slash at one point were talking to Steven and they were like, we're the guys that everyone in this band is worried most about and we're most worried about you. Like he, it was to the point where he couldn't even play anymore most of the time. Yeah. Everyone will do that. Yep, yep, yep. So in April 1990, Guns would play at Farm Aid. Farm Aid was meant to help struggling farmers at the time. I think that there was a recession for farmers at this point. And uh, it was started by Willie Nelson, Neil Young, and some other artists. And it was also like kind of spurred on by a comment Bob Dylan made during his set at Live Aid. He said that this is like a really great event and I hope that someday someone puts on something like this for farmers of America because they really need it. This show would end up being Steven's last show too. And unbeknownst to him or I believe anyone else. I don't think anyone saw this coming. Uh, So there's a story where he tried to like, when they were coming out, do this theatrical dive onto his drum risers and he missed it by four feet. He was so messed up. And he smoked his face. And he says that it was a non-incident. Yeah, and everyone else says he smashed his face. <laughs> yeah, I was going to look up a clip to see if I could find it and I didn't. Even- I don't know if that's on the internet or what, but I would love to see it. Just him what, wrecking <laughs> his really face. But then he gets up that. and he plays the show and I think he did okay. Well, he definitely played. He definitely played the show. Whatever that means. I'm sure he did the Steven standard. (laughs) I know we give him so much shit, but then we're going to end up getting to the point where it's like, everyone's like, after he left it, nothing was the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It turns out the grass is greener wherever everyone isn't. Although, like, after reading these books, every compliment I've ever heard anyone say about Steven is so backhanded every time. <laughs> like, Goldstein was like, he was never the best drummer by far, but his swing really brought a different style to yeah. it. So also in 1990, Axel decided that he needed to marry his girlfriend, Aaron Everly, who, if you remember, was the subject of Sweet Child of Mine and some of his other songs. So he ended up driving to her house at four in the morning and knocking on her door and asking her to marry him but she refused and so he said that he had a gun in his car and he was going to kill himself if she did not agree to marry him (laughs) so she gave in and on april 28 1990 they drove to vegas to get married he said that he would never hit her or threaten divorce for her again and then a month later he ended up threatening divorce for her but he didn't go through with it also he hit her a lot he hit her a lot a lot she ended up in the hospital multiple times we'll get to it yeah we've got some specific things not a great person at all no axel is really not a really not a great person so the band officially ended up replacing steven adler with matt sorum in july 1990 he had been on the la scene since 1976 and had been in kind of cahoots with the band i mean in the la scene everyone knows everyone and then he was also the cult's fourth drummer so i don't think he was the drummer that they went on tour with the author of my book 
described him as the monolithically hard-hitting drummer. Yeah, he became the backbone that nobody ever talks about. One of the big draws that he had that Steven Adler didn't have was that he was not addicted to drugs. And he was actually scared to join the band because he had heard that they were huge drug addicts and stuff, but he didn't know that the band had kind of gotten itself clean and they were still drinking a lot and doing drugs a little bit, but not anywhere near the amount that they were doing when they first started and everyone was talking about how much drugs they did. Well, they said it was pretty split up too. Like it had, it got into be like divisions, like just Duff and Slash partying all the time by themselves. And then Izzy kind of secluding himself, Axel secluding himself. And then it said once Matt joined, he kind of ended up sticking with Slash and Duff. So they were still partying really hard, but the drugs weren't as big of a part of it. Yeah. And, and he didn't realize that the whole reason that they fired Steven was because he was such a drug addict and he could not play so he uh so izzy was the one to go tell steven steven claims that he was called by doug to sign some papers he said he didn't read through them at all he thought that it was just an agreement to be sober and he was okay with that he didn't read through any of it and he signed it turns out what he signed was an agreement to give away his rights and get kicked out of the band dumbass now what we have, so Izzy went to go tell Steven, according to the other story, and found him trying to scrap cocaine dust together to stay high. That sounds more about right to me. I think that's probably <laughs> the true story here. <laughs> Steven would eventually sue guns after he got kicked out and said that they got him hooked on drugs and that they were the reason that he was a crippled drug addict, but I doubt that's the case. Yeah, I think that they had it there and he very much indulged on his own accord. In the summer of 90, Adler's out and Sorum is in. Ice-T approached Axel to do a version of Welcome to the Jungle with him. I read that there was Ice Cube, but I don't know. I, yeah, I thought that I could have been wrong, and then I looked back at my book and it was Ice-T. So Ice-T's the dude from, just another, um, what's the show? The Criminal Show. S- SVU or... SVU, yeah. yeah, Law and Order. Yeah, it's Ice-T. Yeah, I know who the, yeah. the Ice-T is. <laughs> Wait, why is there an Ice Cube there? I'm so confused. That's what I'm, I'm saying. My book says Ice Cube was the one. That, it wasn't Ice-T, it was Ice-T. Your Cube. book said Ice Cube? Yeah. This is what? the first time Ethan has read through the outline. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say red, but (laughs) when we originally agreed to do Guns N' Roses, Ethan said, I'm going to read the book written by Steven Adler. And we said, okay, that's great. Not realizing that Steven Adler was the first one to leave the band and that most of the band's history was without Steven Adler. So (laughs) So Ethan, not only did you make the conscious decision to be like, I'm going to read the book that's about one member, but also the member that ends up being in it the least amount of time. So after the last episode, we just we Ethan said, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Because we decided once members are out, we're not really going to talk about them anymore. And so we said, Ethan, why don't you go ahead and read the book that I'm reading? And then he told us today, I've read about 10 pages of that book. And so he's coming in with a blind eye to what happens in this story. Nothing that they have said has been a lie. <laughs> So Axel declined to do the collaboration with Ice-T or Ice Cube, whichever one it was, and he ended up spending a lot of time with Sebastian Bach, the lead singer of Skid Row. Gorgeous, gorgeous Sebastian Bach. He is a god of a man. So Skid Row kind of replaced Guns N' Roses as the Gives No Shit band in L.A. Uh, Guns N' Roses was now this big theater rock band that, they honestly didn't want to be, but Axel wanted him to be that, so that's what they were. That they started off talking shit about. Yeah, and then Skid Row came in as this dirty, grungy band that we remember from the first episode, and so a lot of people were really into that because Guns N' Roses had left a void. 
And so during the summer of 90, Erin Everly, now a married woman, announced that she and Axel were pregnant. And she would later find out that she miscarried, and this would actually be the final nail in the coffin for her and Axel's marriage. And she would eventually come to say that the reason for this was because Axel was telling her that in a past life they were a Native American couple and she had murdered their children, so he just couldn't stand that it happened again, he said, which I don't know if that's true, but it does sound like it could be true because we're going to get into some of the stuff that Axel ends up getting to and like in his mind and trying to get into his behavioral issues and he's a couple of bolts loose t- whatever you want to whatever kind of analogy you want to make he's kind of fucking psychotic oh yeah he is he is a crazy dude he said that they weren't meant for each other because of their past life and then the, the woman that he ends up getting with later stephanie seymour he said that they were they were siblings in a past life and that's why they should be married that now. makes them perfect for each other yeah i get that aaron ended up leaving axel in november 1990 so they made it about seven months and the marriage was annulled in january of 1990 That was the end of Aaron and Axel. Axel, shortly after the divorce, got together with model Stephanie Seymour, who would be in a lot of Guns N' Roses music videos. Like November Rain, which ended up costing $2.1 million to make. That's just absurd. I think that was the most expensive music video ever made at the time. It's a very theatric video and everyone hates it. Uh, Everyone in the band except for Axel who said that it's his masterpiece. Yeah, but what about Slash standing on the edge of a mountain with helicopters circling around him? Oh, just shredding. Standing there in the desert playing guitar. (laughs) Pretty pretty freaking sick. Axel really liked Stephanie, but he would get mad that he had to share time with Stephanie's two-year-old son because she had to be a mother and that she really liked cocaine. So the band found themselves back in the studio in September 1992 to record Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Mike Klink would record this album, who he was in charge of also recording Appetite for Destruction, and Bob Clearmountain was giving the task of mixing it, which was quite the feat because the band was recording in three different studios at this time. Axel would be doing his parts in one studio, and then Slash would do his guitar parts in another studio, and then the rest of the band was using another studio. My book actually said there were seven of them because they were also doing some things on the road at the time so they were having to go to different studios along the way. I think that you're correct. I think that as they go on the road, you'll see that when they do the Use Your Illusion tour, they actually finish up some of their parts for the album. So they're, they tour for an album that hasn't even been released yet because the album was so delayed. It's crazy. <laughs> So the band was worried about remaking Appetite for Destruction, so they wanted to work hard to change their sound and actually to outdo Appetite for Destruction because they were so worried about peaking with their debut album. The band didn't like Bob Clearmountain's sound, so they ended up firing him and then bringing in Bill Price. So actually at this time, Axel had been really involved in the Clearmountain mixes. He kind of like obsessively oversaw it. Niven said that when they got the mixes, he put it on for Goldstein and they were just so up. They said it was completely unlistenable. It was like this polished, there was nothing raw about it. It was boring. It wasn't good. And that they almost, the two of them almost agreed to release it as was so that it would blow up in Axel's face because they were getting so like tired of how he was acting. And so, as we said, nobody was recording together. There was anywhere between three and seven different studios that they were using. And whenever Axel would get into the studio, all that he was focusing his energy on was the song November Rain. Because this song was like everything to him, even 
Tracy Guns recalled at a time when they were in L.A. Guns and Axel was playing this on the piano and working on it all the way back then. Yeah, back in like 1985, 1984. Yeah. And so, yeah, this this has been a song that's been eating him up yeah. for a long yes. time. Obviously. And I think that he wanted to put it on Appetite for Destruction, but he got told no because it was too much of a ballad yep. and they wanted this album to come out fast. Matt Sorum, the new drummer, came in and was very confused because as far as he knew, he was joined in this hard rock band. All that he knew was the Appetite album. And so he saw all these weird ballads coming in and he was very confused with what kind of band he joined. This was not what he signed on for. Yeah. Absolutely. So they had Dizzy on piano, a full orchestra and backup singers on this album. And the first album, all that it was, was those five guys, those five original members. And then it was a kind of a big deal that on Paradise City, there was a synthesizer for a little yeah. bit. That was the only thing, but it was huge for them. They were really skeptical on even using it. It was a two guitar band, and now there's a piano player and the full orchestra, all this extra stuff, and it was really messing with everyone. Axel and Slash played with Sebastian Bach and the guys from Metallica and played a show on November 9th. In December 1990, the band had 35 songs ready to go. They wanted to put out four albums, but Geffen said that would be too expensive for fans. They compromised the two albums and released it on the same day. Originally, Geffen wanted to try and do, like, release one and then release another, like, six months later, a year later or something to try and span out the arc that they could tour on this. But Axel was like, no, no one has ever had a number one and number two album at the same time, and I want that. And then he ended up getting it. And and that was after Appetite and then GNR Lies were both in the top five at the same time. So he was, Yeah, which was already a huge thing. Yeah, he only wanted to outdo himself. So yep. the albums ended up being called Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. And then other titles that they were going to go with were GNR Sucks and Buy This. I really like Buy This, but it's not quite as good as Steal This Album by System of Down. <laughs> Steal This Album. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. So in the meantime, Slash went to go play with Bob Dylan for his Under the Red Sky album and played with Lenny Kravitz, Iggy Pop, and Michael Jackson. Geffen wanted to have the albums out in spring 1991, but no one thought that this was going to happen. So the band went on tour for the album four months before the album even came out. So the band was set to play the Rock in Rio Brazilian Rock Festival. So the problem with this rock festival was that the band had actually never played together in public. Matt Sorum and Dizzy Reed, these new members, had never played with all of Guns N' Roses. And everyone said the sound was completely different. Like, the fans could tell that it just wasn't quite the same after Steven had left. The The swing was different and it was, it was obviously still good but everyone said it was noticeably different. I'm sure it was very polished in comparison yeah. to their old yeah. performances. Yeah, which is crazy since we've been ragging on Steven this whole time and then now they play with Matt Sorum, who's a great drummer, and everyone's like, this isn't this isn't right. He just plays too good. The band practiced without Axel, who would refuse to show up to any kind of practices or anything, and then they took off for Brazil on January 15th. And this was kind of the beginning of the end for Niven. Axel had Goldstein call him and tell him he was not allowed to be in Rio. Which is so sad. Yeah. Uh, so they checked in their hotel. Axel was Bob Omibone, Slash and Duff were the Like Sheet Brothers, Izzy was Dalai Lama, and Matt was Ian Wassasaint. Dizzy apparently didn't have one, and so that's fine. Apparently he wasn't creative. Yeah, he's just a piano playing weird ass. You tell someone you play piano for a living and they'll leave you alone. <laughs> 
Oh yes, they do not want to make conversation with you. They're like, so where where is uh, Slash? Where's he at right now? <laughs> uh, so they practiced twice in Brazil without Axel still, and then Axel showed up just before they were set to go on on their first show and demanded that the band sign the gun's name over to him. He said he wouldn't go on stage if they didn't sign it over to him, and they ended up giving in and signing the band over to him. The soundcheck was the first time the band played together as a whole. So the band ended up playing for 160,000 people at the Maracana Stadium on January 20th. That is so insane. 160,000 like people. Yeah, that is nuts. That'd be such a cool noise to hear just standing on stage. Yes. And if you'd believe it, Axel thought that the crowd wasn't good enough and he cut the set short by 20 minutes. Oh, baby bitch. They made up for their first night being a bit. Two nights later when they played and just killed it. They did so well and everyone loved them. So after they played this Rock and Rio festival, they got back into the studio. Axel had moved into the studio permanently to work. He had a bed, an exercise bike, a punching bag, and two pinball machines. He just he was a big Who fan. He wanted to be a pinball wizard. <laughs> and Axel was getting very private at this time, but he let a photographer into the studio to take photos of him. And you can actually find photos of him playing the pinball machines in the studio. It's kind of cool to see. So Geffen really wanted this album to be done. They were going over budget with everything. They needed a deadline. And so they sent Izzy in because Izzy was really the only person who could talk to Axel. And so they sent him in to talk to Axel about possibly finishing the album. And Axel flipped out on Izzy. And so Izzy was like, well, screw this. I'm not going to talk to Axel about this again. I'm going to be a member of the band. And then after this, Izzy didn't work on the album again. So I think his parts never made it past the original four track recording that they did yeah he was like just fuck it i'll just do it i have to do it i'm not going to contribute i'll just play yeah and so izzy did that and axel ended up firing alan niven in may of 1991 he refused to finish the album unless niven was replaced so geffen fired niven and then had doug goldstein step into niven's place and slash would eventually say that goldstein was kind of the guy who would play both sides against each other he would tell everyone what they wanted to hear and he clearly had just Axel's best interest in mind whereas Niven had everyone's best interest in mind. John Reese replaced Goldstein as their tour manager there were mixed emotions about all of this. Yes, there were. So with this new lineup in place, with Goldstein as their manager and John Reese as their tour manager, they began the 28-month-long tour called the Get in the Ring Tour. That's what Axel called it, or as everyone else called it, the Use Your Illusion Tour. Axel had to have his own name for it. Good God. So this 28-month-long tour would take them around the world twice. They had 209 scheduled shows, and of that, they would play 195 of them. It started on January 20th, 1991 and ended July 17th, 1993. And this was actually... That is so long to tour consecutively. Yes. I think that this tour started before we were all born and ended after we were all born. I was born in 90, so I was a ah, This tour actually <laughs> started sorry, before Austin. I was conceived and I was born That's during it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, how about that? I wasn't even a thought yet. <laughs> uh, this will be their first big tour that they headlined. If you remember, they headlined some of the legs of their first tour, but this would be the first tour that they would headline the entire thing. So it was their tour. Yes. So after playing some warm-up gigs, they hit the road. Axel actually ended 
injured his foot while they were filming the You Could Be My music video shortly before the tour started. He had to have a custom sneaker made that would be fashionable and give him the support he needed while on tour, which I kind of imagine like the the Axel Nike or the Axel Adidas. I think that'd be kind of cool. I think it was the Nike, but I think it went like knee high. Like I think it was super high so that it could have the arch support and everything that it needed. So he probably wore pants over the, the shoes? I would assume so. I haven't seen pictures or I don't know if I've seen pictures of this. So I Man, I sure hope they had some zippers on the side of it because that's going to be hard to get your foot into if it's that long. <laughs> it's a pretty long shoe. That's a pretty long shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Their first show of the actual tour was in Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. Their set was huge and so was their backstage. They had their own green room that they built at every venue. It had furniture, a sound system, video games, a full bar, and a full buffet. And they had to set this up every single show. The crew wasn't allowed to tear down any of it until Axel had left. And sometimes Axel wouldn't leave until, you know, six or seven in the morning when the sun was coming up. So the crew would have to tear it down, drive it, beat the band to the next venue, and then set it back up by the time the band got there. And what a pain in the ass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and if you remember, this was in 1991. So technology was not as streamlined and sleek as it is today. It wasn't like you just plug in your phone to a couple of speakers. If you wanted to have a sound system, you had three foot tall speakers. You had a record player connecting to a head amp and then the head amp went out to the speakers and everything. And so they had to tear that down every single time. And the TVs with the old CRT TVs. And it was just this huge, crazy thing. Like I feel like Axel would have been doing this on purpose just to be a pain in the ass. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, he did it. I'm sure that he did it partially just because he was like, I can do it. I can sit in this until I have the ability. Yeah, I'm going to sit in this thing. I'm going to play no video game. I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit in it and I'm going to make people wait. I'm going to look at all this stuff. I'm just going to sit here and look at this stuff. It's going to be <laughs> not even be happy about I'm it. I'm not going to be happy, but I'm going to look at it and you better not touch it. And then I'm going to leave and you have to tear it down and you have to beat me to the next venue so I can continue to look at it. Better get it set up before I get there. Or you know, I'll be upset. I'm the artist and you're the crew. <laughs> and I'm sure they got paid Do really it. good money. As you will find out later, a lot of their money went to union charges and stuff. Good. So Skid Row was opening this leg of the tour and a lot of people thought that Skid Row was providing the authenticity of rock and roll that they were looking for, almost making Guns N' Roses the has-beens that they themselves opened up for a few years ago. Yeah, they were a lot like GNR in their beginning. They were had that same energy and kind of not as dangerous of a vibe, but like the yeah. edginess. Their record would also hit number one while on tour. So they did the exact same thing that Guns N' Roses had done to Aerosmith, and they did it to Guns N' Roses. So they were blowing up quicker than Guns N' Roses could, but Guns N' Roses was still huge at this time. Yeah. Everyone in Guns loved flying in their private jet. They had their own jet now, except for Izzy, who preferred to take a tour bus to every gig. This jet was insane. It was a 747. So I'd said they had like their full bars, like full living rooms and rooms for each person. Like, yeah, the 737 I worked on had bunk beds in the back and like computer systems up front where they worked on everything. It was fucking sweet. Yeah. This was built to be a luxury liner for the band. So yeah, it had everything that they wanted. They each had their own room. I think that they had like groupies going with them or, or roadies or whatever. And Matt and Dizzy loved all this because they were still new to the scene. So like having these, these hot naked chicks around them was 
awesome where everyone else didn't give a shit and they just wanted to go do their own thing. So they all enjoyed flying on their plane except for Izzy who wanted to take a tour bus to every gig and he wanted to do this because he had all of his motorcycles, his bikes, his skateboards, all of his little gadgets and everything and then he also liked his privacy. He had his girlfriend or wife at the time and then his dog and he just really liked to be able to slow things down and just look at the scenery when he went. Guns had no set list for their shows. Axel would call out songs that he wanted to sing and the band was expected to just go along with it and this actually went surprisingly well. They it seems so nerve-wracking to me. Yeah, the band just was able to just go on the fly just starting to play songs and yeah. I would not be able to play a set without knowing what it was going to be. This is the part I actually read, and that really stressed me out reading it. Oh, yeah. And if you remember, Axel would go on these long rants, so he would just talk about nothing. So the band was just meant to wait there and listen for what he ever had to say. So he would just be saying stuff, and then he'd be like, and they're out to get me! And then the band was just expected to start at that exact moment. It's like... Yeah, and they just have to be ready. Yeah, and so, yeah, he would just be talking about nothing, and then all at once say the title, and then the band was just expected to start, and they did it, which is incredible. So Matt was also expected to play a drum solo every night so that Axel could run backstage and get a shot of oxygen. When Matt actually first started, they told Matt right before they went on that he was going to have to play a solo. He was not planning for it. He didn't expect it. He did it. He did it really well. And that was when the band was like, all right, this guy is legit. Like he can actually play. He's not just right after he shit his britches. Oh yeah. That has got to be nerve wracking. He's got to have bowling balls in the drawers. God. So the band played in Indiana on May 28th. Axel stopped the show to complain about the small stage they were on and the 1030 curfew that the county had put in place. And really, Axel was just mad because he was back in Indiana in his home state. He hated it. Those hometown blues. I get that every single day. (laughs) And this would happen again and again. Uh, It actually happened so often that I'm not going to mention it when it does, because if I mention it every single time, this podcast would never end. We would do six episodes of just, they went to this show and then it happened, and then they went to this show and then it happened, and then they went to this show. So it in a little bit, we're just going to say every shitty thing that Axel did, but this one thing, him complaining about curfews, happens again and again and again. And half of it was self-induced because Axel would go on and play late every single show, and then he would be mad that there's a curfew in place. So they played a second show in Indiana, and Axel actually had a lot of family come to that one. He went and had his grandma picked up in a stretch limo, and she knew all the words to all of Guns N' Roses' songs. That's adorable. Yes, it's very cute. I imagine that she was like the grandma from Happy Gilmore, you know? <laughs> you said the happy Gilmore thing and I was thinking of the old lady from Wedding Singer instead like the old lady that like talks like about sleeping with however many different partners and stuff when I was your age I had already slept with eight men it would be like 200. <laughs> but the one in but the one in Happy Gilmore, I just imagine her in the scene where Happy is supposed to be going to his happy place and then she's like wearing the Gene Simmons mask. <laughs> <laughs> and like makes out with Shooter McGavin. That's that's the version Jesus. of the Happy Gilmore grandma that I imagine. So, funny. so Axel kept people waiting for hours before he would play and then he would have to pay huge fines for going past state curfews. But Axel didn't care. He wanted to go out and play when he was ready. He would sit backstage sometimes and not do anything. He would just sit backstage and get mentally prepared and so everybody just had to sit around and wait which made them upset and so it made the show not as good. In July 1991 You Could Be Mine was released as
is the band's first single off their new album. This is my favorite gun song. And it would also be used in the movie Terminator 2. Arnold Schwarzenegger originally approached them wanting to use Welcome to the Jungle, but I don't know if it was Goldstein or just uh, some of the execs at Geffen. They were like, we shouldn't give this much attention to a song that's four years old. So they pitched You Could Be Mine to him and he loved it. He brought the whole band to his uh, home in California. And Goldstein says that he's just the best salesman he's ever seen. Like he had done research on everybody. He like knew that Niven was a port and cigar kind of guy. Slash like Jack Daniels. Axel wanted Dom Perignon. And they like clearly have a whole house staff but when they everyone got there his wife was like cooking for them like they'd sent the whole staff away like just put on this huge production and everyone like just fell in love with him that just seems like arnold schwarzenegger in a nutshell <laughs> what a schmoozer <laughs> so arnold schwarzenegger would also appear in the music video for you could be mine uh so it was a real collaboration between terminator and the band another thing about this song is it's it's definitely the hardest kind of rock song on it because it was meant to be on Appetite and it didn't like it's in the slip of Appetite for Destruction. The line with your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue is in the cutout. So it was almost in Appetite. It sounds like something that should be straight on Appetite, honestly. like The song didn't do as well as Geffen had hoped. Geffen executives were worried that their music was already old compared to the new grunge movement that was happening with bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots. These bands were huge, and so the old rock grunge that was Guns N' Roses was already changing, and Geffen kind of thought that they were already has-beens at this time. The new sound was totally different than, what, than Guns N' Roses. But the Use Your Illusion albums were still highly anticipated. There was still a following for him. So Axel had a lot of people with him on the road, way more than anyone ever should have. He had masseuses, stylists, trainers, therapists. One was Susan London, who can be seen in the Don't Cry music video. That was his personal therapist, right? Yeah, like legit therapist. Yep, yep. And then uh, another lady he always had around him was named Sharon Maynard, who they called Yoda because she was like this tiny little, uh, I believe, Asian woman. I don't know if that matters. Yes, you are Anyway. Uh, so she was this tiny little woman and she would apparently end up getting really involved in the business side of things. Like Axel wouldn't make any decisions without going to her. And she was like a full blown power of the crystal mystic kind of lady. Yeah. Yeah. Her whole thing was like, she was like a spiritual therapist. So she just got to make things up essentially, unless you believe in that. But yeah, yeah she just got to say like the, the atmosphere on this stage isn't good enough. We have to wait two more hours and the band would have to wait two more hours to go on because this lady said it. I believe they canceled the show in Minnesota because she said the energy surrounding Minneapolis was so bad. I'm sure that she decided yeah. her own pay, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. He said it made him feel better when he had his entourage with him. That is correct, but no amount of people would matter for one of the shows that they played. On July 2nd, 1991, the band played a show in St. Louis at the Riverport Arts Center. A lot happened to unravel this show. The security was lax. Axel didn't like the venue. It was hot and humid. The stage was around 100 degrees when they went on. There was a fan backstage that made Axel very nervous, and people were recording when they went on stage. A biker gang came in and pushed everyone to get to the front of the stage. A biker was yelling Axel's name to get his attention, and so Axel actually stopped the entire show to talk to him, and the guy handed him a business card, which Axel took and tried to go on with the show. And then the guy took out a camera and started recording the set. I actually 
actually read that the person recording the set was someone who worked security for this venue and he had taken the night off because Guns N' Roses was his favorite band. So he wanted to watch them, but he was filming it and he caused this whole thing we're about to get into. And basically at one point he said he couldn't even leave his home. He was getting so many death threats over what would happen because of this. Yeah. So Axel demanded that the camera be taken from the security guards. But from what I read, nobody was willing to do that because this dude who was the biker was this huge, big, burly guy. So, well, it would make sense if he was a security guard, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either one would make total sense. I don't, again, we don't know why there's. It was probably both. He was probably a biker that worked security while he was. Yeah. Uh, And so Axel actually stopped the show to jump off the stage and then attack the guy to get the camera. The band stopped and watched as Axel was grabbed and thrown back on stage by security. Axel lost a contact in the tussle and got mad. And quoting Axel, he said, well, thanks to your lame-ass security, I'm going home. And he decided to walk off stage. He uh, went out with the classic mic drop or a mic throw. Apparently, he threw it down so hard it sounded like a gunshot through the arena. Yeah, oh, I totally believe that. He like, completely smashed the mic when he threw it. Yeah, so the promoter knew that the show was over. Once Axel walks off stage pissed, there's nothing you can do. So he turned on the house lights, and that made the audience super pissed, and they immediately started rioting. Uh, The band actually tried to go back on, but the audience would not let them. And apparently Doug was was trying to lead the band back to the stage, and the promoter was waiting, and he's like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And Goldstein was like, we're ready to go back on. And he was like, no, fuck you. You've done enough damage. And they said that when they tried to go back on stage too, they said that the people rioting wouldn't let him go back on stage. Oh, they, yeah. They said that there were so many people on stage that they wouldn't let them get back on to try and continue. God. So the audience, yeah, rushed the stage and then they started breaking everything. And then they carried chairs from the back of the venue to the front just to throw them on stage to do more damage, which is surprisingly organized for being such a chaotic situation. Like you can see <laughs> yeah. footage of it and they're just hand. Everybody's working. Yeah, together it looks like a trash. <laughs> I'm gonna say I've seen video of this part and they're just fucking chairs. It looks like a flood relief, stage. like where they're sandbagging, <laughs> oh but it's God. chairs to destroy a venue. Someone got on stage with a fire hose and started spraying everyone down, which would be extremely painful because fire hoses come out at a super high PSI. <laughs> so it took cops three hours to stop this riot, and the damage was estimated to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was nearly a quarter of a million. Yeah, they broke everything. They broke the entire stage. They broke all of the band's equipment, everything. Uh, I think I read that at one point, I think it was Matt tried to go back on stage because he had never been a part of a riot before, but the rest of the band had besides Dizzy. And he like tried to go back on, but was immediately like told no. Or when he started to walk out, he was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to get anything back. So he just walked off and, and yeah, and the band, they said people were burning marshals on the stage. Yeah. So I think the band just booked it out of there. They did not want to deal with it. Axel would eventually be charged with three counts of assault and one count of property damage. Axel settled and didn't return to St. Louis until a tour much later in 2017. And he was fined $50,000 for the incident and then from this the media blamed the band for all of this which rightfully so and then this made Axel hate the media more so he'd already had a building hatred of the media and then this just added fuel to the fire this also caused the 4th of July show in Chicago to be canceled as well so from then on the shows were totally hit or miss Axel said he didn't want to fake an orgasm on stage if he wasn't having fun he would show it so he'd either have a genuinely good time on stage or he would show everyone that he was miserable on stage this sounds a lot like my wife what do you mean 
if, if like if she wants to have sex, you can tell, and if she doesn't, you can really tell she doesn't want to have sex, but she does it anyway. Wow, my God. I don't know if I feel comfortable leaving that. <laughs> <in. Yeah. laughs> my wife's a real crowd pleaser. It's okay. So the road crew had to scramble to find a new stage and new equipment for the band. They also had a week off with the canceling of the Chicago show. So Axel spent the time polishing some vocals for the album with Shannon Hoon, who we mentioned from the first episode was the lead singer of Blind Melon. And he would start showing up a whole lot. He would sing in a lot of songs on the Use Your Illusion albums, and he was in the Don't Cry music video. The tour got started back up, and they did a lot of shit. This is where I'm going to say all of the shit that Axel did over the entire tour, because we don't have time to get into it for every specific show. Just know that all of this stuff happened while on tour. So here we go. He screamed at a kid for giving him the finger. He screamed at CNN for talking shit about him. He screamed at about being sexually abused as a kid. He kicked a roadie who had run on stage to pick up a mic that he had knocked over. He told the audience to beat the shit out of someone who threw a bottle at him. He ran off stage and made the band kill time for half an hour. He went gambling instead of going to a show. He showed up three hours late to shows. He stopped a show to make someone confess who threw a cherry bomb near them. He told Slash he would kick his ass in front of 20,000 people because he had misheard something Slash had said. He canceled the show so he wouldn't be arrested. He had a drunk person removed in a crowd of 72,000 people. He stopped a show and sat on the drum riser and in the pit for a couple of minutes, completely silent. He had his siblings come on tour to build a different themed room every night for a band party. He went to the sound guy in the pit during a show and had him fired and he ran off stage after getting hit in the nuts by a cigarette lighter. And one thing about this lighter incident, Goldstein said that after it happened, Axel like limped over to side stage, cupping his nuts. And like, this is just how much of a baby he was. And he was apparently like, I, I don't have my voice anymore. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then it made him lose his voice. Yeah, you think it would just make him sing better, sing a little higher. Such a baby. You would think it would hit higher notes with that, but yeah. he's fine. Yeah, that is a hell of a shot. I will say that. Yeah, way to go. No matter, yeah, no matter how far away they threw that, that's a great shot. Hey, if you're the guy that hit Axel in the nuts, message us. We love you. Give us a DM. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you a shout out. We'll have a beer with you. (laughs) So during this time, they also finalized the album. They finally said that it was done on July 28th, 1991. And I think Axel said something like, on stage, he said like, this motherfucker is done, which got plenty of cheers and they had a VIP party backstage to celebrate. And the guest list included Johnny Depp, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Cher, Billy Idol, Lenny Kravitz, and the famous Pee Wee Herman. Have you guys seen that video of Johnny Depp going around of him playing guitar? He plays in Hollywood Vampires. It is very funny because he can't play. I believe that. He is literally he like... It is so he bad. He has a slide on his finger and he's just going... <laughs> <laughs> and never forget that Pee Wee Herman got caught jerking off in a theater at a pornographic movie. I mean, what do you? what's the problem with that? If you go to Toy Story, you go to watch. That's all I want. If you go to an adult theater, you're not there to watch. You are there to jerk off. That's applause at the at the adult movies. Yeah, Pee Wee Herman did nothing wrong. He was in the he was in the place to do this. Yes, he did he did what he should. Yeah, he should not have been arrested. That's right. That's the That's expectation. Right. Not the crime. Okay. The band went on a quick break before heading to Europe. 
Axel was upset with Izzy, who began to separate himself from the band. He didn't like the music they were writing. He liked the older, harder stuff and the videos they were making. So they, he didn't like how theatrical all the videos were. And if you've seen any of the videos from this era, they are all very theatrical. They get so elaborate. <laughs> so Izzy thought that the band was getting too big. If you remember Duff and Izzy, when Appetite hit number one, they were not very happy that the band had hit number one. So he didn't like that they were now going on these huge tours, having all these theatrics, blah, blah, blah. So Axel was mad that Izzy wasn't putting as much into the shows as he and Slash. Izzy was just standing on stage looking cool while Slash and Axe were running across the stage wearing themselves out. So he wanted to cut Izzy's pay unless Izzy got more energetic. So they got back on the road, and after having to cancel a show in Oslo because Axel didn't show up, they had the talk in Mannheim, Germany. The meeting that they had lasted four hours while Nine Inch Nails and Skid Row opened. The show stopped after 20 minutes when Axel walked off the stage. The venue locked people in so no one could leave and told Axel he would be arrested if a riot broke out. I feel like locking people in is an awful idea that's how people die that's a great way to start a riot <laughs> that is a great way to start a huge riot luckily the band realized that they needed to go back on otherwise like they said axel will be arrested so they did go back on and play but i don't think that they were happy about it yeah no not at all so they played at wembley on august 31st and everyone did really well at this show even izzy but this would actually be izzy's last show he would stick around just long enough to see the debut of the band's second and third full-length albums which would be Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, which released simultaneously on September 21st, 1991. Tower Records stayed open all night so that people could get the records when they first came out at midnight. And there were thousands of kids waiting to get these albums. This was the first full album they had put out since being big, and it was blowing their mind. Slash went to Tower Records to watch people come in. And he sat in the same room as a celebrity that he was in when he was a kid, which I don't think we touched on in the first episode when he was a kid he got caught stealing an Aerosmith record and had to go get scolded in this same room so he now sat in this room watching all of these people buy his album yeah because it was that, like a room with a with a one-way mirror right yeah yep so the album two, yeah. showed the same image one in gold and one in blue it was a high contrast image of a child writing on some paper with his legs crossed this was an illustration done by Mark Kostabi with the title use your illusion that's where the album titles came from and and this was actually a cropped and recolored portion of Raphael's painting, The School of Athens. And they actually found out they actually found out afterward that they spent a ton of money on this Mark Kostabi painting, but they could have just used the they could have made it themselves for way cheaper, but Axel wanted to use this version of this picture, so he made them pay the money to get this version of it. So the albums were met with mixed results. The audience knew that this wasn't the same band they had fallen in love with with Appetite. Despite that, the albums went to number one and number two on the charts, as we said earlier. A quote from Goldstein that I just think is really cool was, this had become a cultural signifier, a piece of living history, the last great event of the vinyl and CD era, which is crazy because that is just never going to happen again, like like an event that big. Yeah, people circling blocks and having to wait in line to go pick up an album with, yeah, the Spotify, Apple Music, yeah, all that, that's never going to happen again. So Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 had sold 7 million copies each, and they compared that to the Appetite, which had sold about 14 million copies at this time. So it had done just as well, but it took two albums to get to where Appetite was at this point. There was a lot more people on this album, in a 
addition to Dizzy on piano and Matt Sorum on drums, Michael Monroe played harmonica on You Ain't the First, Shannon Hoon did a lot of backing vocals, Alice Cooper did vocals on The Garden, a clip from Cool Hand Luke where actor Strother Martin justifies the torture of Paul Newman's character was in part of it. Because that's the way he wants it. And he gets it. <laughs> he gets it. Steven Adler played on Civil War. This was because he had recorded these parts before he was fired. They said it took 60 takes cut and assembled to get this because he did so badly because he was on an opiate blocker when he recorded this. Yeah, and he complained about that a lot. He said that he was on an opiate blocker and everyone thought that he was still fucked up from opiates, but he was actually on a blocker and it really made him not perform very very well because he started taking the opiate blocker too soon because he still had opiates in his system on an opiate blocker, so it really messed him up. That's fine. What a goddamn idiot. That's just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Izzy thought that Don't Cry was going to be the last track on Use Your Illusion 2. It was a song that he and Axel had worked on together since they had kind of become really close. They had worked on this song for a really long time, and it meant a whole lot to him. And so he signed off on this song being the last song on the record, and then Axel changed it to him ending the album with the song My World, which is a rock rap song that Izzy had never heard before. Bold choice. Bold choice. This really pissed Izzy off and may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. It may have been the last straw for yes. him. Yes, yeah, I think that he thought that it was going to be the sentimental song that they worked on, and that was not it at all. It was this piece of trash. I don't know if I've really listened to it, to be honest, but if it's classified as rock rap, I don't think <laughs> I haven't heard it at all, but I have heard Don't Cry, and that, that's a pretty good song. Yeah, that song is fine. I mean, it's, it's whatever. It's very emotional. Yes. After this, after all these things, after the album had come out and it wasn't to Izzy's liking, the band wasn't really to his liking anymore, Izzy announced that he wasn't going to be doing any more videos with the band, so Shannon Hoon stepped in for the Don't Cry video. So if you watch it, you can see Shannon Hoon. They don't really look alike or anything like that, but they but he stepped in to do his parts for him. He also announced that he was going to go back to Alan Niven, and Axel was very upset by that, and he had demands if the bands wanted him when they went back on tour in 1992. The band refused his demands and Jeff Isbell quit Guns N' Roses in October of 1991 and it would hit the press that he quit in November of the same year. He was starting his own band and didn't want to be part of the band that had gotten him too big. He had a new band called Izzy and the Juju Hounds, which was rumored to have members of the Rolling Stones on the record. Their album would be released by Geffen Records in the fall of 1992. Izzy went on to Axel's house to try and talk, and Axel cursed him out over the intercom at the entrance to his place. Izzy and Axel wouldn't speak for a real long time. That is true. They left with very tense relationships. So with Izzy gone, they needed a replacement for their next leg of their tour. Axel wanted his friend Dave Navarro to join, and Slash pushed back because Dave was another lead guitarist, and they needed a solemn rhythm guitarist. Izzy was a rhythm guitarist, that's what he knew, and Slash was a lead guitarist, and that's what made their sound so unique. And so having another lead guitarist in there would have totally screwed up the sound, and also Dave had a huge heroin problem at the time. Slash Slash looked at Gilby Clark, a guy they had known since the early 80s, who was a solid rhythm guitarist. So Gilby called Adam Day, Slash's guitar tech, 
to tell Adam to get slashed to give Gilby a chance. With that, Gilby got the job. He would only have a few months to get all of Gunn's songs learned before heading back out on the road. Because if you remember, Axel Dever had a set list. He just said, this is what we're playing next. So Gilby had to be on the ball at all times. So with that, they headed back out on the road for the tour that was getting too big. Axel was demanding for the next leg of the tour that they get a bigger band. They wanted what the Rolling Stones had when they played together. Axel made Slash find him a whole backup band. Theodore Andriatis, known as Teddy Zigzag, sang backup parts and played harmonica, keys, and the tambourine. Diane Jones, Roberta Freeman, and Tracy Amos were brought on as backup singers. Lisa Maxwell, CeCe Worrell, and Ann King were brought on to play horns. 13 people were now in the band. Yes, the band was much larger, and Diane Jones, Roberta Freeman, and Tracy Amos, as well as Lisa Maxwell, CeCe Warall, and Ann King were all women who Axel really wanted. He wanted to have that sex appeal, so he made all of these women play, and then they were all scantily dressed. The tour started back up in December with Soundgarden opening. Guns was having to pull in grunge bands to bring in people the same way that Iron Maiden needed guns to pull in people when they were playing together. The atmosphere was much different without Izzy. People were sad, and it was tense backstage. They had three new members and a whole backup band, and these guys were no longer friends. They were co-workers. Yes, and that never works out. 1991 would round out with them losing two members, gaining ten, with marriages, divorces, touring, and tension. And 1992 would be no different. January 3rd, 1992, the band played in Baton Rouge with Faith No More being added to the opening acts. The vocalist Mike Patton began mocking guns, saying the audience shouldn't expect them before midnight because of obviously their That's lack of performances. Mike Patton can late. do whatever he wants. Yeah, and say Mike Patton, I, I love Faith. I'll let him do anything. I don't yeah, care. I, that was a big band for me. But <laughs> Axel and Slash told him he had to stop because obviously he was defaming this band that he was opening for. Soundgarden was also still on the tour, but didn't want to be. They saw Guns as old farts and were out of touch with what was going on currently in the music scene. Guns couldn't believe how seriously Soundgarden took themselves while they were playing. Yeah, Slash said they were coming from a place where there was no fun to be had while rocking. Yeah, and Slash, Duff, and Matt actually came on stage one time, and they were they brought up these blow-up dolls, and they were naked, and so the, they were just humping these blow-up dolls completely nude. Actually, Matt and Duff had underwear on. Slash was completely naked, and he also happened to be the only one that fell over while doing this, so everyone got an eyeful. And uh, everyone in Soundgarden was like super upset about this and uh, appalled, except Chris Cornell. He uh, actually said he saw the whole band as like sweet, nice guys, like funny. But there was this Wizard of Oz-like character hiding behind the curtain, and that was Axel. And he said it was just like kind of sad that everyone was trying to enjoy this crazy opportunity this once in a lifetime thing at, that they got, and Axel couldn't even seem to enjoy it. I'm going to say this every time, but. Rest in peace, Chris Cornell. Oh, God, yeah, of course. And you can yeah. you can totally see exactly what he's talking about. If you watch Duff and Slash and, and then Matt and Dizzy, like these guys were having a great time and stuff, but then Axel would just be his thing, and he would cause so much stress for the band that wasn't needed. And so you could totally see exactly what Chris was talking about. He couldn't have any fun, and he didn't want other people to, and he would stop that at every chance he could. Yes, yeah, if he, if he, yeah, if he wasn't having fun, nobody was allowed to have fun. So at a show in Ohio, Axel cut his 
hand on the mic stand. It had a bad weld, and so when he was using it, he cut it and had to cancel two shows so that he could fly to New York to get it looked at. Jesus. The band then flew to Japan to play there. Slash went a couple days early to play with Michael Jackson, who he'd recorded with in the past. These shows went surprisingly well, and there were no real issues. The shows with Guns N' Roses, not the shows with Slash and Michael Jackson. Those also went well, but that's because Slash is just a cool dude who can handle himself. They headed back stateside to film their music video, November Rain. After this, they then headed to England to play the Freddie Mercury tribute concert for AIDS awareness. Freddie Mercury had died in late 1991 of AIDS, which I'm sure everyone knows at this point. Gay rights groups tried to get them taken off the bill because of the song One in a Million, but Queen specifically invited them. Slash played Tie Your Mother Down with Queen, and Axel sang the vocals for We Will Rock You at Brian May's specific request. Axel also sang Bohemian Rhapsody with Elton John, which helped end the group's perceived homophobia. After this, the group toured with Metallica. They wanted Nirvana, but Nirvana declined. Metallica actually wanted to open for Guns simply because they could go on and play and not have to worry about the band's drama and would get paid whether the Guns played or not. Tensions would be high among the two bands and Metallica would break band protocol when they were done touring together. This was kind of great for Metallica because the way it was described is they were this blue collar band and every performance was like so powerful. So it was always getting the crowds riled up and no matter what, they were always going to look good compared to Guns N' Roses when they put on this amazing kick-ass show and then it's could be another two, another four hours before the next band even played. Yeah, this leg of the tour, Metallica and Guns co-headlined. So it wasn't an opening and a headlining act. They were co-headlining, yep. but Metallica asked to be the first band to go so that they could always play and get paid because they were professional. They always went on. They always played the amount of time that they were supposed to, yep. and they always came off when they were supposed to. And Guns did not do that, and they didn't want to deal with Guns' bullshit. And they also knew they'd look way better in comparison, too. Yeah. So after they were done, James Hetfield called Axel Axel Pose instead of Axel Rose, and he very released... Clever. Very clever. Very, and, very clever. <laughs> and he released Axel's contract writer for his specific dressing room, which... Nobody really ever does that. That's kind of the protocol that he broke. He needed a cup of cubed ham, a fresh pepperoni pizza, one can of Pringles, one jar of honey, and one bottle of Dom Perignon champagne. Uh, and if you would like to see more of what James talks about with the Guns N' Roses rider and stuff, you can actually check out their documentary, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, Part 2. But for now, the band flew from Dublin to Slane, Ireland, to play on May 16, 1992. They were welcomed to a case of 40-year-old Irish whiskey and a barrel of Guinness, courtesy of the band U2. Sounds amazing. Mm. Oh, God, real, Guinness. real Guinness in Ireland. I that'll that's that's yeah we're, i've done it suck it nerd i don't really have anything to say to you right now yeah i hope that you like selling your soul in order to get there dumbass hey man six years for three times drinking guinness in ireland i'll take it what's up shannon ireland you'll never hear this but it's cool we'll get there so the band went on an hour late axel was actually still in dublin when they were supposed to go on so axel had to be flown there and so they were on an hour late nothing new for them. When they played Axel still had no set list and had to run off stage to get oxygen. This was actually a huge pain in the ass for the props and pyrotechnics for the show because they had props and pyrotechnics for certain songs but none of the crew could prepare for when they were going to have to use them so they had to be on standby 
all the time. So not only were they making the band have to like fly by the seat of their pants, they were also having to make the road crew do it as well. And I was a stagehand at a theater, like a live theater. And when there are shows going on, they have to the minute events what's going to happen. So they say like, you are going to have to push this prop off at minute 38 and then minute 41, you're going to have to move this on. And then you're going to have to run to the other side of the stage in 15 seconds. And then you're going to have to pull the curtain shut at, at minute 46. And that was stressful. So not having a timeline of when things were going to happen would be unbelievably stressful and it would change every night. They could lead the show with the song that needs pyrotechnics one night and then they could not do it for the first 40 minutes of their set the next night and nobody knew. Or at all. Or at all, yeah. So they had no idea how it was going to happen. So the whole place was just on edge the entire time all because Axel refused to be tied down by any kind of plan. And the crew also had to sign gag orders saying they would not speak poorly or at all about the tour and these gag orders were put in place by Axel and nobody would get paid unless they sign these gag orders. Very shocking. Wow, how political. <sighs> Very shocking. Oh, my gosh. It's, he is... I, Dick, I don't know man. if anybody's ever said it, but Axl Rose, fuck off. You are a great vocalist, but seriously, <laughs> fuck sure off. I'm sure plenty of people have said it. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people have said, Axl, you're such a fucking asshole. But let's, let's be the 69th person to say, Axl, you're a fucking oh asshole. Oh, my God. Yeah, he... God, I don't know how he got away with all of it. And it's all because he had this voice that nobody else had. So I want to ask you guys, I want to get the fill on this. Do you guys think that Guns N' Roses could have survived putting out Appetite with Axel and then getting rid of Axel and finding a new vocalist? No. No. So you think he was a necessary evil? Yeah, because they needed him to tour that album. Yeah, I don't think it ever would have been the same band. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You just, you need him. He's the face. He's the voice. All right. You wouldn't find a voice to replace what he did. He's sure. the bar he set in Appetite, I don't think was would be meetable by someone else. And you know what, man? He covered Hair of the Dog <laughs> so well. He covered a lot of songs, really. Uh, uh, to be honest, though, like, if I hear knocking on heaven's door or if I hear live and let die, I always think of Guns N' Roses. I don't exactly yeah. he covered two songs that you could never hear. Like, I mean, I could, I guess the Beatles version I could hear with Paul McCartney, but it, I, I think that Axel's version stands out. Yeah. More yeah. Yeah. Me. Live and let die is Paul McCartney and the wings. Yeah. Not, not Beatles. Yeah, but when you hear it, well, yeah, when you hear it with Paul McCartney and when you hear it with uh, Bob Dylan, you almost think that they're covering the song, yeah. even though Guns yeah. N' Roses is the cover. You have no yeah. idea. All right, well, there we go. So the band decided that they wanted to have their own live TV event, and so they put out bids for it. And HBO jumped on it, which I think HBO would almost have to do this because of how much the band cursed and how dirty they were and so Raunchy. yes so hbo jumped on it and they agreed to a live concert on june 6 1992 the band will be joined by aerosmith guitarist joe perry and singer steven tyler lenny kravitz and english guitarist jeff beck axel didn't show up to any of the rehearsals which made steven tyler really upset and slash was embarrassed by this steven tyler is just like Where's your vocalist? Like, he asked us to be here. Why isn't he here? I'd be horribly embarrassed if Steven Tyler was asking me why I wasn't, why something wasn't happening the right way. Trying to make an excuse for your vocalist, <laughs> oh why he's not there, to Steven Tyler. And if you remember from the last episode, the bands toured together and Steven and Axel really liked each other. So I think that Steven kind of thought that it was going to be this friendship kind of being regrouped and then Axel just never showed up. Like, that just makes it. Yeah, didn't have the time yeah, of day for just it. Just super disappointing. 
disappointed that this person he thought was his friend didn't show up. Yeah, just made it that much worse. So Matt Sorum hit a cymbal during a rehearsal, and Jeff Beck was standing too close, and I think he, like, blew out his eardrum or something from how loud it was. And so he actually just went back to England and backed out of the show, which that hurt morale as well because they just lost one of the three guests that they were going to have. And Jeff Beck is a pretty important person. If you look into music history, especially, like, around the 60s, he's pretty important. Yeah, he's a pretty big name. So losing him, I'm sure that they advertised the show a little bit with him on there. So then losing him was kind of a big deal. He's a band. He's a person that Eric Clapton played with. So he's pretty important. Yeah. So on June 6th, 1992, the show went live. There were 60,000 people in the venue and an estimated 400 networks were taking the broadcast live. So guns started late, which was a big deal for a live concert because this broadcast was only supposed to last a certain amount of time. So guns going on late made people in the venue have to just sit there. It made people watching it on TV have to just sit around. So arrogant. Um, And then when they finally went on, Axel went on and attacked Stephanie Seymour ex-boyfriend Warren Beatty uh, which is super petty he very Axel move yes he, right on par <laughs> he attacked I mean he attacked him by name and he was like fuck you like you old man go find your own family that kind of thing yeah it was super petty nobody was impressed by it but the show went on and Steven Tyler and Joe Perry joined guns for a couple of songs they had to wait for three hours to go on they were supposed to just jump on for a couple guest spots and so they had to wait a super long time to finally get it so after after this, they went back on tour. A show had to be canceled because Duff was sick with the flu and Axel's voice was going. If you remember, Axel couldn't do a 16-month tour for the Appetite Tour without his voice going out. So I don't know why an older Axel thought that he could do a 28-month tour. Bold and not- move. It was a really big decision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really bold. Yeah. So he had to take a week off for his vocal cords to heal because he was spitting up blood during a show. And I think that he kept going during this show, but then afterwards, I mean, that just completely shot his vocal cords. I'm involved in, like, metal music, and I've never spit up blood dirt, like, from doing it, so I can't imagine. Yeah, I've definitely never spit up blood from screaming, so I can't imagine what singing, what kind of singing would have have to be involved to make you spit up blood. Yeah, I think that they were on tour for like a year at this time. So they were prob- they probably had played about a hundred shows. And yeah, so just going on and giving it your all every night. I can't even begin to imagine what that would do to someone's vocal cords. And you know he was probably doing everything right before sets too, Yeah. right? Yeah, of course. Axel Rose doing something wrong. I, I don't even want to hear it on this podcast. So on August 8th, the band played with Metallica in Montreal. During Metallica's set, James Hetfield's shirt caught on fire and he'd suffered second-degree burns. Uh, he said that at some places his arm and hand were both burnt down to the bone. Yeah, so Metallica had to cut their set short, which they were super apologetic for. They had one of the members come back on and say, like, we are so sorry this happened. Well, it came out It came out later that this whole thing happened because during that break, like, because this was in the middle of the tour with Guns N' Roses, so during that break where Axel was letting his voice heal Apparently, Lars Ulrich was like, I don't like how my riser is set up for my drums and I want it to be able to be seen from at least 15 people back. So they had to rearrange the whole stage setup, which moved a bunch of the pyro cubes and no one had told James or anyone that they moved these cubes. And so he just stepped back right onto one as it was going off. 
Hey guys, just so you know, we moved the pyrotechnics, <laughs> so uh, you should watch out for this fire we're going to shoot out I don't of know, the stage, yeah, why buddy? would you think you don't need to let everybody know where this thing that's literally floating on stage? The bands are, bands are all so sloppy compared to what they seem like they should be. So one time, one of my bands opened for a decently big band, which uh, a member of Slipknot was there to also see them. And so afterwards, our drummer knew uh, Clown from Slipknot, and we were all standing out yeah. in the back talking. And the singer of this band that we opened for was like, God, I hope we, you know, get pyro someday. And Clown was like, careful what you wish for, because one, say goodbye to all your money, and two, you will get blown up. <laughs> yeah, he told the story about how at one point they were in the middle of uh, Heretic Anthem, and they had pyro, and he was climbing back onto this uh, part of the stage setup right as one went off, and it like blew, he, he had to like strip out of his jumpsuit real quick <laughs> and stuff because it was on fire. Just ask Great White, you know, the band from the first two episodes. They had a bunch of people die yeah. in a concert because they had, yeah, they had a big fire due to pyrotechnics. So that's great white. Oh yeah. They had that big fire in the venue. Yeah. Pyrotechnics can go way worse than almost than what they're worth. So guns stepped in to save the day after Metallica had cut their set short. I of course am kidding. <laughs> Clearly they did not uh, come right in. <laughs> they did not. All of guns rushed to the venue to go on early because the promoters called them and said, Hey, we had this happen. Uh, can you please come in? And everyone was super ready to help. Like uh, they said, like Slash and them were trying to figure out like extra things they could do to straw their set out and fill up more time from Metallica's set. Yeah, but except one person. Axel decided that he was going to stay in his hotel room for two more hours. He said that he wasn't on tour to pick up slack for anyone else's mistake. So James Hetfield burning himself to the bone was a mistake that Axel wasn't going to cover, which yep. is so arrogant of him to do this because people were doing this for him for years. People were going on it stage. A trend. Yeah, people were going on stage for him to fill time and to, you know, they had to play when he was refusing to play. And so the one time that he got asked to do it, he said, I'm not doing this for anyone. Like, it's not my job to do this. Just sat in his hotel and pouted. Yep. And then when he got to the venue, he took another hour to get ready. They went on four hours after Metallica came off. So I'm sure the crowd was super happy. That's a whole two hours after their original set time. Yes. To the audience while they were playing, he was quoted saying, maybe I was just too fucking bummed out to get my ass up here any quicker. Maybe I couldn't move any faster than I wanted because it was a bitch. Like, as if that's gonna, that's just makes it okay. <laughs> Make everyone happy. I just couldn't, man. It was just too hard for me to do. I just have a lot going on. I've got such a hard life. He made this, he made James Hetfield getting burned about him. Yep. He, he made it <laughs> it's about like everything him. else. Yeah. So they played for the contractual 90 minutes that they were told to play. And then Axel ran off, stating sore throat issues and there was no encore. So he was also he, saying the monitors, he couldn't hear anything and that they were shit. Yeah. So, yeah, he, they went on four hours late and then they played for 90 minutes and didn't play an encore. And then an extremely disappointed crowd rioted the band just sat in their dressing room while they listened to the entire mayhem that was going out outside yes yeah they said it sounded like a stampede above them yeah and they just sat in there and they were just Fine. like same shit different day yeah 
because they were in the bowels of the stadium, so it was like everything was happening above them. So Metallica would play again on August 25th with James Hetfield's arm in a cast and his guitar tech playing his part. So this band was committed to playing for everyone, so as soon as they could, they got back on stage, and James couldn't play, so he had his guitar tech play the parts, which is a far cry from what Guns was doing at the time. If that had happened to Axel, the whole they would call the whole tour off. So this tour would continue through the rest of the year, and then later in the year, they would play at the MTV Music Awards. Axel played the award show with Elton John on September 10th. Backstage, he ran into Kurt Cobain. And this is because Nirvana opened this. And they actually, this was like a really big moment where Nirvana kind of took over as like the, well, obviously they already kind of garnered this bad boy image, but MTV had expressly forbidden them from playing their song, Rape Me. And they were contracted to play the song Lithium. But right before they played Lithium, they played a few bars of Rape Me and then went into Lithium. And apparently everyone at MTV, they were like about to cut the feed and everything because they thought they were going to play the whole song. <laughs> and then Doing uh, it as, just to be, just to, just to piss people off. Stir shit up, yeah. Masters, man. The original yeah. Masters, right? Which I think that's amazing myself. But And then as they were leaving the stage, uh, Kurt Cobain actually spit on the piano that he thought was Axel's, but it was Elton John's. Oh, makes it much more sad. Needless to say, Axel and Kurt Cobain were indifferent to each other. Axel had asked Nirvana to go on tour with them and they declined and then Axel had asked Nirvana to play at his 30th birthday which they also declined so backstage at the MTV Music Awards Courtney Love called Axel over to say hi and Kurt Cobain jokingly asked if Axel wanted to be their new baby's godparent the way I read it though was that Courtney she loved to stir shit up just as much as and if not more than Kurt and so she was like, Axel, Axel, be our baby's godfather, like making fun of him. And that made Axel so pissed. That would explain his comments. <laughs> Axel said, shut your bitch up. I'm going to take you down to the pavement. Kurt turned to Courtney and said, shut up, bitch. <laughs> yeah, apparently he put on this like shocked face like he was so upset that she said it and like just mockingly was like, shut up, bitch. <laughs> and that really just shut him down because I don't think Axel thought that he'd actually do it. Yeah, yeah. Axel was this guy who just was like, if I say something, the world is going to stop and it's going to listen to me. So Kurt just turning and saying this so nonchalantly completely shut, shut him down. down. Yeah. So Axel just walked away with his tail between his legs. He had gotten completely beat. And so that was the end of Nirvana and Guns N' Roses story, essentially. So then after this happened, the band went back out on the road. Surprise, surprise. Their opening band, Faith No More, was dumped from the tour for an unknown reason, which people thought it was because Faith No More was bad-mouthing guns again. And which I'm sure they were. Absolutely, yep. I'm sure that that never really stopped. They were replaced with Motorhead and Ice-T's black metal band, Body Count. Now, I know you said that your book called Body Count a Black Metal Band, but they're definitely not a black metal band in any sense of the word. They're like rap metal, like new metal. They're like, as I say, they're like, they're almost like, yeah, like a I hardcore crossover Talk band. Shit. Are you saying that the are you saying the author was making a racist joke? You know, yeah, I, I think that it was definitely a racial term to say there is no way they can be metal. compared to black metal in any way. Because like everything I, that Ice T does is very spoken word, like in a hardcore sense. So I feel like it was more of a racial yeah. thing. I sent you guys the image. 
of my book saying you did, black metal. You did. I just want no, I just want everyone it. to know that it yeah, that I'm not I didn't misread this. They called him a black metal band. Ice T actually sympathized with Axel and even stated one in a million was a misunderstood song. So he so Axel got his first bit of sympathy for this racial song that he wrote. Racist song that he wrote. Finally, he got the sympathy he totally deserved. During this, Slash also had a near-death experience. He was doing crack cocaine at his hotel after a fight with his girlfriend and then was going to Matt Sorum's room to do more cocaine. But he didn't quite make it. He collapsed in the hallway, and the hotel had to call an ambulance, and the paramedics found that his heart had stopped. They hit him with adrenaline and restarted his heart, and they estimated that his heart had been stopped for eight minutes. He was taken... Yeah! <laughs> I'm sure there was no brain damage. Not one bit. Eight minutes. I'm surprised they didn't find him and they were like, he's dead. Eight minutes. Uh, he looks pretty good compared to Axel. I say, look at him. I mean, his hair's over his face most of the time, but he looks fine. Slash just looks like Slash with a little bit of gray and 20 extra pounds. Axel looks like like Wormtail from Harry Potter. <laughs> Which is exactly, I think, what he has always wanted. I mean, it's crazy because he was the one who was doing like no yeah. drugs, no nothing at this time. Everyone else was like, you know, hitting everything up and somehow they all look great. Obviously, yeah, just, if you want to yeah. live a long time and look good, you need to do a lot of heroin and cocaine. Duff's fucking pancreas or whatever literally exploded inside That's of him. Right. He, looks, he looks like a hunk <laughs> to this day. He looks good, yeah. So he was taken to the hospital and released later that same day. And he was upset that this happened, but... He was upset that this event took most of his day off away. A lot of shit I wanted to do. Like, he wasn't upset that he almost died. Yeah, he was upset that his day off was taken away because he almost died. I can relate to that. I was really looking forward to enjoying that cocaine I just snorted. (laughs) So after this, he really cut back on the drugs he was doing, but he, you know, didn't stop. I don't think he got sober until, like, 2004. So about another decade before he finally stops. So after this event, the band hit the road. The venues they were playing, at were no longer selling out. They think that a lot of the reason this was happening is because their tour was so long that they were playing at places they had already played at multiple times. So who's going to keep going, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, they only have such a big crowd. That totally makes sense. If you're going to play the same place twice... You better make sure people there really right. love you. And so the places that they were playing at were losing interest with Axel's antics, them going on late, them leaving early, blah, blah, blah. So they played in L.A., which was their home. So it should have been a great homecoming show. They played for an arena that was two-thirds empty, which was unbelievable because they were still a huge band. Remember, they just put out this album that was number one and number two on the charts. That's so disgusting. And, yeah, now they were playing to this place that was two-thirds empty. So they ended up playing in South America, which had never been tried before. There were bands that wanted to play South America, but every time somebody set something up, they always backed out because the fans there were insane. To hear them and Goldstein talk about this sounds like a literal horror movie. They said, like, while they were setting up, there's, like, gunshots in the background. Like, just... Sounds like a nightmare, honestly. I mean, the early 90s, I'm pretty sure in South America were a pretty turbulent time. Yeah. Like, I know that Colombia was in a civil war at the time, so... Like, stuff was insane. They were scared of this place, which is really saying something. People rioted when they wouldn't be let into a venue due to having no tickets or there being no room because people were overselling tickets. This show was the first night was, so it was supposed to be two nights. And there was a problem with their gear getting there in time. So the promoters were under the impression that it was the first night was going to be canceled and only the second night was going to happen. And they oversold 
buy 30,000 tickets to let everybody in and it ended up being a disaster. People weren't being let into the venue, so they all rioted outside of the venue. So the band was playing inside to people and outside there was fires being started, cars were being tipped, everything like that. So they booked it out of South America and- They said they had to sneak out of the country. After everything they'd been through, this was the worst show they had played in terms of everything else. They said it was like a tiny plane waiting for them and they had to like take a Jeep there and and not let anyone know where they were going. And I'm sure they were doing it the same way that people snuck like cocaine out of those South American countries. Yeah. So when they got back, Axel and Stephanie had a Christmas party and Axel didn't really want it like the day of. And so he and Stephanie got in a fight over it. And so Stephanie grabbed Axel by the testicles and twisted, which one of us can relate to. And then Axel. Okay, buddy. <laughs> Watch Boy, it. Austin. 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 Shut your mouth Austin. I'm just going to leave it there. I mean. Jerk offs can have your laugh. <laughs> and so Axel, in retaliation, threw Stephanie down the stairs. They announced their engagement a month later. <laughs> yes, and uh, they were both mentally stable enough to announce that they got <laughs> engaged. Um, and then they broke up in February 1993. So this was December 1992 when all this happened, and then by February they were completely broken up. Axel stated that he thought that Stephanie was cheating on him, and it actually turned out that she was. Uh, she had a child like at the end of 1993. So Axel sued Stephanie for $100,000 for not returning the jewelry he had given her while they were together. And then she countersued later in the year for assault after he threw her down the stairs as well as other beatings that he did because that was kind of his thing, which is beating women. And they brought in Aaron Everly to testify against his assault because Axel had beaten Aaron multiple times. And then in turn, Aaron also sued Axel. So he ended up paying Stephanie $400,000 and Aaron's amount was never fully disclosed. So he got hit with the double whammy. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he started this whole thing and then he ended up having to pay at least $400,000 with the probability that he paid much more to Aaron Everly because they were actually married. If you remember this, the marriage was annulled. Yeah, they got married, but then they got annulled. Yeah, but they actually were like legally married for a while. Out of all of this, Axel got Stephanie's nanny, Beta Labeus. She would eventually become his pseudo-publicist and spokesperson. And Beta was completely soaking wet horny for Axel. But just, I just a damp panties. She was, wanted it so bad. I just have to read this little excerpt. So Look up what she looks like. Uh, she said, Axel is a person who wants to do everything right. He was the kind of passionate man a lot of women would like to have in their lives. He was like a charmed prince. He did for Stephanie all kinds of things you could find in a romantic book. What he did doesn't exist in real life anymore. I think a lot of women would have loved to be in her place. I would have never left a man like that. But Stephanie is very pretty and sexy. She can have any man she wants, and she uses men as toys. Just for the record, she is not hot. (laughs) But she wanted it anyway. Yeah, better, like, watch (laughs) Stephanie's kid than she got the child that was Axl Rose in the end. Uh, The band then headed to Japan in early 1993, and the crew for this tour was now around 80 people, which included all the people Axl needed. A lot of these people were there just for Axl, 
so that he would feel more comfortable. These shows went off without a hitch and they headed back to the US to finish their tour stripped down. The band dropped off the extra backing vocals and horns players that we talked about and they played with just the six members that were the heart of Guns N' Roses, which the guys liked way more. They hated being a big theatrical band because as you remember in the last episode, they hated Iron Maiden, which was a big theatrical band. Yep. These shows were going well, but Gilby Clark crashed his motorcycle and had to have surgery and the band had to cancel four shows. They were building up this repertoire of like being a little bit more of a reliable band and then they had to cancel these shows. So they lost all of their reputation. Looked really bad. Yeah. yeah. These shows had already been canceled and rescheduled. So it just pissed off so many people. They were worried about the European tour they had set up. So they called back Izzy Stradlin. Izzy Izzy. Stradlin. Oh, it's so good to see him again. The man returns. There were some mixed stories on who had the idea to bring back Izzy, Slasher Axel. It was said that if Axel said it, it was just this like, yeah, we should bring back Izzy. And everyone's like, yep, I agree. But if Slash said it, Slash went behind Axel's back and got Izzy in. And Axel was originally really mad about this, but eventually went along with it because they needed someone else to play because they couldn't cancel more shows. Izzy was called and agreed to play five shows until Gilby was better. He demanded $1 million for his time. He said he was only doing this for the salary. He didn't care about it. He just really needed the money at the time. And he also said he would not rehearse at all, which is fine. I'm sure that would go totally fine. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure he still did super well. Yeah. Well, my book described the shows he played as a sloppy. uh, It was something about being sloppy, but also amazing. Which that's the heart of Guns N' Roses is being this sloppy rock show. And also the heart of heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, 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 they're past that. Come on. (laughs) It's in the past. So the band took off to play overseas with Blind Melon, Shannon Hoon's band, Soul Asylum, and The Cult. Uh, So if you remember, when Guns played their first tour, they had opened for The Cult, and now The Cult was opening for them. Got him. Got him. Yeah, they got the last laugh here. During a show, Shannon Hoon went on stage naked to deliver a pizza to Axel, which Axel enjoyed this. He thought that it was all right. Very funny. Very yes, it's pretty good. He had really long hair, and he would wear bobby pins in his hair to keep it down, like a lot. He looked very feminine in appearance when he yeah. He's fun. a pretty good-looking guy. Fun, there yeah. are more naked people at gun shows than at any strip club you'll find. Getting naked as a goof was a big thing. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can relate. Honestly, yeah, yeah, I've been there. So during these shows, they shot some of the footage that they used for the estranged music video. Izzy went to go live in Indiana once he left this tour much to the surprise of everyone everyone thought that he would never return to indiana so when he got a place there everyone was pretty shocked by it once izzy left gilby returned and the band headed to buenos aires the band was having fun while axel sat in his hotel room he was enjoying a steak on july 16th 1993 when 50 authorities busted into his room they said this was like full swat like dea like they claimed that they were tipped off that there were drugs in his room they searched but only found homeopathic remedies and psychosis medication. It's funny they searched his room when there were other guys that were actually using drugs on the tour. And for some reason in my book, there was like a little clip and it just was cited as a random roadie. And he was like, they would have had a better chance finding them in any of the other rooms. Yeah, all the other dudes were actually doing drugs and Axel was the only one that was clean, but they went to his room. Anyone else would have had drugs. I mean, what do you do? But Axel gave a long rant about this at their show for the 70,000 people in attendance. They played one more show on July 17th and then headed back to L.A. 
slash Duff, Matt, and Dizzy had played their last show as Guns N' Roses for almost 20 years. So the Use Your Illusion tour was a huge success. It was the longest tour in rock history. It would go down in history as one of the last great rock and roll tours. Goldstein called it a monument to the industry in excess, perhaps never to be repeated, which is so true. I feel like even the biggest artists nowadays are... It's never done anymore. There's just not that much money anymore, I guarantee it. They may have like their private jets and all this, but they were literally bringing in at like they were having after parties after every show on these like two year long tours. They said they had theme parties where they would have like full buffets and actual casino games and everything like in their green rooms and stuff. It's insane. That's just, I feel like that's not the case anymore. It's so much more a business standpoint more than rock and roll and partying now. Yeah, absolutely. People today don't want to spend the money like they did before. I mean, all this stuff that was going on, it was all at the expense of the band, but the band was like, we're going to live. Now it's all, everything is such a business that it's like, oh, well, if we get this bottled water instead of this bottled water, we'll lose $50. (laughs) And so we don't know if we want to do that. So this tour was estimated that they played for 7 million people and grossed $60 million. Slash, however, estimated that they lost as much as 80% of their revenue to curfew fines and union labor overtimes, all thanks to Axel. Axel ended up testifying at Steven Adler's trial where he was being sued for getting him addicted to drugs. This case would eventually be settled out of court for $2.25 million, song credits be giving back to Steven, and he would receive future royalties from the Appetite album. Adler was super stoked about this and celebrated by doing a lot of drugs, which led to his stroke, leaving him permanently speech impaired, which... He had two strokes and a heart attack after this. If you watch interviews with him, you can definitely tell he has something wrong with him. Um, but yes, he he sounds coherent now, and I believe that he's really cut back on using drugs. Geffen released a solo album by Duff McKagan, which did not do very well. The band worked on an album of punk covers in complete secrecy. One of the songs was a Charles Manson song. This song was Look at Your Game Girl, which I hate to admit, it's not a good song. I won't say it's a good song. But his voice is kind of interesting. Charles Manson does have kind of a good voice. But it's also really bad that they did this because this song was written as part of an album to raise money for his defense in his trial. So it was like clearly after Helter Skelter and everything that took place. And don't forget, like, Charles Manson used to perform with the drummer from the Beach Boys, so he wasn't a complete fuck-up as a musician. Yeah, Yeah, no. I think he was. I think everyone thought he was a joke. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was a joke, but he didn't do awful. He was trying. He did do things that made... This was just another thing that Axel was like, we're going to do this just because it's against status quo and we're going to do... Exactly, yeah. yeah. They they just wanted to try and stir And he would wear a Manson shirt on stage. A bad... What's that saying? Any publicity is good publicity. Thank you. That was exactly the thing he lived by and it somehow did him well. So, no one was impressed by this Charles Manson song that they did and Slash said that he didn't even play on the song on the album. The album was released on November 23rd, 1993 with the name The Spaghetti Incident. There were mixed stories about the story behind the name. One says that it was related to a David Bowie movie, The Linguini Incident, and another says that it was about a food fight between Axel and Steven Adler much, much earlier. In my book said this was the more likely actual 
reference. The one with Steven Adler yeah, and Axel? The food okay. fight thing, yeah. Okay. Another said that it came from the code word spaghetti that Steven Adler used for cocaine, which he kept in takeout boxes in his refrigerator. So the spaghetti incident was him doing cocaine. Oh, God. Uh, whatever it is, the album did not sell oh very well. God. People were over guns, now fully moved on to this alternative and grunge movement that had been happening. This is the one album that my mom had on a cassette tape, and I remember listening to it, and the only thing I remember from it was the Hair of the Dog cover. Slash and everyone else really liked this album because they were like, look, like we can do these covers or whatever. But I think it's funny that they did an album of covers after they had like two or three covers on the Use Your Illusion album. They, they had, that's where they had Live and Let Die. That's where they had Knocking on Heaven's Door. So they had already done covers, but then they're like, we're going to do this whole album of covers, which yep. completely tarnished their name. I think they tried to use the album as like a way for people to understand where they came from musically, but it didn't work. I, I, yeah, you are correct. That That's what they wanted. They, show, they said that they wanted to put this album out so they could show their influences done their way. But yes, it did not work whatsoever. So in early 1994, Axel would make his last public appearance for six years at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction for Elton John. The rifts between the members became too much. David Geffen had sold Geffen Records to MCA for a billion dollars and gave the band an album advance of $10 million. He then started the company DreamWorks SKG. So there's a story about how Niven had gotten the band this $10 million up front. David Geffen was super well known for not renegotiating contracts no matter how big a band was getting. And Niven was like, look at how huge this band has gotten since they've started and really hounded on Geffen to give them a redraw on their contract. And he agreed to give them this $10 million up front, but their royalty points were still only like 15 points, which most bands were getting like in the 20s. And so Goldstein said he set up a lunch with Geffen and wanted to talk to him about it. And he basically told Geffen he was like I knew if I asked Geffen he was gonna say no so I told him he was gonna give us that 10 million plus the the royalty credits we deserve and Geffen was putting his finger in Goldstein's face saying like like scolding him for even saying that and Goldstein grabbed him by the hand and bent his arm back so that Geffen's face was down against the table and he was smashing his face to the table and he's like I'm gonna leave the room knock on the door and we're going to try this again. And so apparently Geffen was like, if you knew anything about me, you'd know it was pointless to come here and ask me this. And then when Doug had him in that like headlock, he was like, if you knew anything about me, you'd know that putting your finger in my face is going to get your arm broken. And he ended up leaving, getting a deal to get this 10 million upfront and their royalty credits increased to 36 points, which no one had gotten at that point. God, what a what a hard ass. After they got this $10 million advance, they built a studio with pool tables and pinball machines so the band would feel comfortable trying to put out this new album that Geffen was desperately trying to get out of them. But the band would never use it. In April, Duff fully quit drinking after an incident where his pancreas literally burst. In short, when it burst, the bile was let out and gave him third-degree burns on the inside of his body due to the acidic reaction with his insides. Yes, so he spent 10 days in the hospital and was told if he drank vodka again anytime soon, he would die. He would die. It's not even a question. He would just, the alcohol would bleed into him and he would die. He said he was at the point where he was so unhealthy, he knew he was dying because he was not eating He wasn't drinking water. He was literally only drinking booze, but he had, in a junky sort of way, 
convinced himself that if he stopped drinking vodka and switched to wine, it would be better. But they said at that point so he was relatable. drinking almost 10 bottles wine. a day. That is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he That's said so after gross. he quit drinking, he said being sober was like being on acid simply because everything around him was so real. So if you. I'm actually grasping what's going on around me. Yeah. So 10 bottles of wine, you're going to be under the influence pretty heavily. Everything's going to seem kind of like a dream. No idea what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And so when you're fully sober, everything is moving so fast, blah, blah, blah. You know, have, you know, sober life. And Duff would eventually go to college and graduate with a degree in finance. And the reason that he did this is because he was looking at GNR's finances after he got sober. He was looking at where they spent their money and stuff, and he didn't understand any of it. And so he got frustrated and was like, well, I'm going to go get a finance degree. And so that's what he did. Gilby would release a solo album with parts by Duff, Slash, and Axel, but this album would actually get him fired. Axel saw him as a hired hand and not a member of the band, so he fired him without consulting anyone. Gilby would eventually sue Guns, and they would settle out of court. Axel hired Paul Huge to replace Gilby. He co-wrote Back Off Bitch, which a lot of people see as Guns N' Roses' worst song, even worse than One in a Million, just because it's such a sellout, shitty song. And everyone in the band hated Paul Huge. Slash said that he had no personality and no guitar skills. Slash was also starting his own side project called SVO Snake Pit. SVO stood for Slash's very own. And then the Snake Pit because he loves snakes. Slash's Snake Pit. He loves them. Uh, he played with Gilby and other local musicians. He also had Matt Sorum and Dizzy on it, too. So these guys were all, like, still, they remain close. They were all on Gilby's album. They were all on Slash's album. Like, they were all still close. They just had this one terrible person that was a part of their group. Yep. They released an album, which sold 2 million copies. I think Geffen released this one as well. And the album just made its money back. They didn't. It didn't do super well, but they were happy with it. They were on a short tour and broke up. And then during this tour, they actually played Monsters of Rock 1994. So they made their way back there. I don't think anyone died this time, did they? No one died during their set. I don't know if anybody else, you know, I don't know how anything else went. No one could speak to Axel. Axel was doing his own thing. He would show up at the studio really late at night or really early in the morning when nobody else was there. And Slash once tried to talk to Axel by staying late after he was done with his parts. But Axel never even looked up from his magazine to hear what Slash was saying. And this pissed Slash off to no end. So arrogant. Such a prick. Just blatantly ignoring him in the same room. Just completely ignoring everyone that created the empire he's living on. Exactly, yeah. This this mountain that he is at the top of, everyone else helped create, and yeah, he's, he's soaking it all up. They agreed to do a cover of Rolling Stone's Sympathy for the Devil for the movie Interview with the Vampire. What a movie. Oh, that's a Tom Cruise vehicle if I've it. ever seen one. <laughs> Tom t- Cruise and Pitt together <laughs> in the smash smash of the summer wow not such Nin- a great film 1994 what a year the only cover of sympathy for the devil that i remember is the one by i think there's one by puddle yeah well that one doesn't even hold water compared to this one that idiot. i'm just kidding it did really poorly <laughs> um duff slash and izzy would show up to record the record and then leave and then axel and paul would show up to record on their own so axel and paul were teamed up and then everyone else was on their own they would never be in the studio at the same 
same time. Mike Klink recorded it and Bill Price mixed it. So the same people who did Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 would do this as well. When the band heard it, Slash hated it. He said Paul Huge had recorded over all of his parts with harmonizing parts and Slash called it a bad plagiarism. Slash said that this happening was the final blow for him. His quote said, if you ever want to hear the sound of a band breaking up, listen to Sympathy for the Devil. Hey, get rid of that puddle of mud reference it they covered give me shelter oh my god that's embarrassing i know it's a different it's a different stone song i'm so sorry the band continued to try and work through 1995 axel wanted to move the band into a more industrial techno genre but nobody else wanted it axel saw this as the future of music but everyone else was like that's a stupid move axel sent the band a new contract which stated he maintained the right to the name guns and roses and could start a new band called guns and roses when Ever he wanted to. The members could join, but only on Axel's terms. This made everyone feel like hired hands, much like how he fired Gilby Clark. Everyone was now on that level. He sent them a letter saying that he was leaving and taking the name with him. So Slash and Duff had no choice but to sign the new contract. I don't think that Matt even received one. So he was out of the band at this time. Imagine if Guns N' Roses started producing music like industrial metal bands, like obviously Nine Inch Nails or like anything from that era. That'd be, that'd be kind of fun, right? No. Uh, <laughs> the answer to that no. question is no. <laughs> what they did put out also is not good, but like what they could have put out could have been somehow worse. So much worse. Imagine Duhast by Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> So in late 1995, Axel took a huge blow when he lost his good friend Shannon Hoon to a drug overdose, and then in early 1996, he lost his mother Sharon Rose. This affected him deeply. Axel and Slash had a meeting to talk about the direction of the band. Slash didn't like it, so he called Doug Goldstein and simply said, I quit and hung up. Doug tried to respond, but before he even had a chance, he hung up. So he didn't even give him a chance to try and say anything. Serious he, Oh yeah, very serious. He told MTV on October 30th, 1996 that he was out, and then Axel sent a fax to MTV saying that Slash hadn't been in the band for almost a year and the new album would be coming out soon. In 2003, Slash, Duff, and Matt started a new band called Reloaded with Scott Wheeland of Stone Temple Pilots. They would eventually add Dave Kushner and rename themselves Velvet Revolver. So they're that's and would put out great music. Oh, like yeah. that was such a big thing for me. Velvet Revolver got me into music that wasn't what my dad wanted me to listen to. So during all of this time, from early 1990s, 1993, 1994, Guns N' Roses was saying they were going to put out a new album and it wasn't coming out. So Geffen needed this new record to come out. This was the one that they had put the $10 million advance on. So they sent Todd Sullivan, who was a Geffen exec, to try and get it out of him. Todd sent Axel CDs by different producers to try and spark Axel's interest so that he could get a sound for what he wanted but later found out that Axel threw them in his driveway and ran them over. God. Axel and he then met, and Axel played him some of the stuff he had written. Todd liked all the stuff that he had written and then asked Axel if he could buckle down and finish up some of the songs. Todd then got a call the next day from Eddie Rosenblatt, Geffen's chairman, and said that Todd was no longer working with guns, so Axel just fired him after somebody tried to pressure him to finish up some of the music that he had written. Axel did announce the name of his new album, Chinese Democracy, 
democracy, which was meant to poke fun at his dictatorship-like leadership. So he knew that he was kind of this dictator, but he just decided that he was going to roll with it, and he knew what he was doing. Flip it in reverse, Exactly. Baby. Boom. The old Missy Elliott. Run with it. Duff eventually quit the band in August 1997 and left Axel as the only remaining original member of Guns N' Roses. He and Slash later sued Axel for no longer receiving royalty payments, which would I would get pretty upset about. They were told it was all an honest mistake and Axel countersued Slash. Yeah, they were told by management, like, oh, this was just not a mistake. We'll get it set up. But then Axel was like, I'm going to sue Slash for whatever he had done. Just another petty check mark. I want to announce right now, we are going to wrap this up. This is going to go really quickly, but this is a pretty accurate representation of what happened. This is 15 years of just nothing coming out. Axel didn't really make many public appearances. He just worked on this album. He had people coming, people going, everything like that. So all of this sounding really quick, this is a pretty accurate representation of what Guns N' Roses were doing this time. I think for the most part, we're just going to let Tony fire through it because this is like, we're about to finish this whole series and there's it's just going to be really quick and it's going to end up to be a big flop. Yeah, there there was a lot of years of just them doing this kind of side bands with each other except for Axel and Axel doing his own thing. Here we go. So Duff was replaced by Tommy Stinton of The Replacements. Slash was replaced by Robin Fink of Nine Inch Nails and Matt Sorum was replaced by Josh Freeze. They also brought in and fired the following people. Brian Mancha of Primus, Buckethead, Chris Pittman, Richard Fortas, Ron Thal, and DJ Ashba, as well as so many other people. This this album that they make is such a huge collaboration between everyone, but not because they wanted it to be, just because people were getting fired left and right. And Axel probably needed the help because he's probably not a very good artist by himself. Yes, that is absolutely correct. The band received an award for Appetite in 1999, and the reward was accepted by Steven Adler only. He was the only one who showed up for it. Guns put out a new song for the movie End of Days, which briefly sparked interest in the new album, but the song flopped. They put out a live CD, Live Era, 87 through 93, containing new songs. Axel said no ex-member was allowed to promote the album, and he didn't either, so this album also flopped. In 2003, Geffen said that they were going to release a Guns Greatest album. Axel didn't want this to happen and said that he would finish the album by the end of the year if they didn't release this Greatest Hits album. They agreed, and Axel didn't finish the album. So, the Greatest Hits album was released March 2004. Which makes sense, because that is around the time that I started listening to that silver-colored Greatest Hits album. Yep, Yeah, the one we talked about from the first episode. They were offering Axel and the band so many bonuses if they would just put out this album. They were like, we'll give you a million-dollar bonus if you'll put out this album. We'll give you, you know, $500,000 if you'll put out this album. And Axel was always like, yeah, you got it, no problem. And then he just wouldn't do it. Like, he didn't care about the money, which some people really liked. They were like, they thought that he wasn't doing it for the money. But it was just because he couldn't get his act together long enough to put out an album. He was doing all this therapy and everything like that, that he just didn't have the time to put this album together. I'm sure that he is a hurricane of a person and just can't get his stuff together. Oh, yeah. I would be horrified if I had to work with Axl Rose. Yeah, like be his therapist, I'm sure is a freaking nightmare. I think being his manager would be a nightmare. I think being his therapist would be fine. You just listen to him ramble for just an hour. Just listen to what he has to and say. Get paid, yeah, and then get paid like 
$50,000 to explain to him. Exactly. Them releasing this greatest hits album caused a spike in the appetite sales, as well as a spike in the single use your illusion CD that Geffen had made. They had taken the two CDs and combined them into one greatest hits album. And so that sold pretty well. In 2006, Axel was punched by Tommy Hilfiger, and a bunch of songs off Chinese Democracy were leaked on a website. The album was eventually released on November 23, 2008, 15 years to the day of the Spaghetti Incident being released. It was met with mixed reviews. It was the most expensive album that had ever been produced, costing an estimated $13 million to make. And it has sold about $3 million to date. It probably hasn't made its money back. The band had been on tour this whole time and had played 239 shows during the years 2001 and 2011. They would go on more tours over the next seven years. They had a tour called the Up Close and Personal Tour in 2012 where they played 49 shows. They had an Appetite for Democracy Tour from 2012 to 2014 where they played 42 shows. And they had the Not In This Lifetime Tour from 2016 to 2018. Slash and Duff would come back to play this tour and they would play 159 shows. This tour was hugely successful because Duff and Slash came back to play with them. It was like a big reunion, yeah. Exactly. This would be the second most successful tour of all time, bringing in over $563 million. Insane amount of money that they brought in. The lineup was Axl Rose on vocals, Slash on guitar, Duff McKagan on bass, Dizzy Reed on piano, Richard Fortas on rhythm guitar, Frank Ferrer on drums, and Melissa Reese on keyboard. They also had some guest appearances during this tour. They had Sebastian Bach, Angus Young of ACDC, Steven Adler played a couple shows, Angry Anderson, Pink, Billy Gibbons, and Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters. The tour wrapped up in 2018, and there have been whispers ever since of the band putting out new music. So if you follow them on Twitter, you'll see a lot of articles saying they're putting out music. And, Thank God, uh, finally, I'm glad. Guys, been so long. that's it. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's all Guns N' Roses. We made it. We actually made it. I'm going to throw up if I have to hear about another one of Axel's tantrums ever again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so over Guns N' Roses. Yeah, this, this was, what was it? 2008, 98, 88, 85. That's 34 years God. that this band has been in existence. They have seen people come and go. The one person that has stuck around the entire time is Axl Rose. He's the backbone of the band. And he's the biggest asshole of the band. He is their success and their downfall. And that's something to be said. Let me tell you, these 36 years have not been kind to him. That's the only enjoyment I get out of Guns N' Roses. I love the handlebar mustache, yes. man. Looking up pictures of Axel now. And how oh, it's so. You can find. I just want you guys to know, like, I'm going to have the mustache. Like, Well, you deserve it. I, de- I deserve it, like. I totally. And we deserve it. it. We deserve to have you have it. It's gonna come back, and Callie's what? Once we start releasing episodes, it's gonna be here. I just want you guys to know. <laughs> just seeing a GIF from when he started to when he ended. That GIF is very funny. That goes through all of his yeah, all yeah, his different looks. It's crazy. He starts out. Oh he, he starts like out a totally different. Person. Yeah, it, when he first started out, he looked like a boy version of Taylor Swift. He was this very attractive person, and now he looks like someone who hangs out and drinks at the VA for eighteen hours a day. 
He looks, yeah, he looks like a mechanic at the end of his rope. <laughs> yeah. So yes, that is all of Guns N' Roses. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed it. We are going to continue to do bands this in-depth. We're sorry that we ran through the last 15 years of the band's history, or I guess 25 years because the album was released in 2008. But really, I mean, the meat and potatoes is the beginning of the... It's the five guys. We don't want to focus on just Axel because Axel's the heart of the band, but it's these it's these five or these seven guys, if you count Matt and Dizzy, it's these seven guys that like are the heart of this band. And It's just not as interesting reading just about Axel being a lone psychopath while he makes his own album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, it's just not as much fun by himself. Looking, looking at the <laughs> Appetite album being the best-selling hard rock album of all time, and you know, looking at their tour that they did, all the crazy stuff they did. It goes from this. It's it's all heavy because they all do do a ton of drugs and stuff. But it goes from like fun heavy to really dark once it's just Axel doing his thing. So it's because it's just it's, him in a constant state of mental breakdown if we get enough outcry to do you know from like 97 to now we'll do an episode on that where we can break that down more but it's just oh there are going to be people pining for it i could tell you right i'm sure there are some axel sympathizers that are going to sending so many emails (laughs) but but for right now we've kind of dealt with the part that really makes guns and roses the band that they are today and that so put axel on his pedestal yes um and so we're gonna leave it there if you want to hear more let us know otherwise we're gonna move on to other bands and we are so excited we are already starting to research the next band we're doing and it's gonna be so fun it's gonna be a one-off this will be one episode because it what we're focusing on a band that is big but in a more niche group, but also is kind of more revolving around the one member who is the face of this band. And it's going to be real fun. And I'm can't wait. Yes. We won't give it away. You'll have to pay attention. But if, if you would like hints on who we're doing next, you can actually go to all of our social media pages where we will give hints on who we're doing. So you can find us on Facebook. We are, we're on in five W E R E on in five. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then if you would like to follow us individually, I, Anton, have no social media, but Ethan. I am Bones for Boning on my Instagram. I am just my first and last name, Ethan, B-O-N-I-N, Bonin on Twitter. So if you want to find me there, find me there. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Austin underscore Thomas 09. Again, Twitter, T. H-O-M-A-A-A-F, as in Frank. (laughs) Three A's, triple A, Frank. And then, as we said in the last episode, we are going to do beer of the week. We really want to be sent free beer. That's what we're hoping for. So the beer that I've been drinking this whole time is a very local beer. Uh, It's the Hoppy Session Ale from Single Speed Brewery in Cedar Falls, Iowa, if you ever get the chance to come here, they have fantastic IPAs. Uh, they're All their stuff they make, they do a lot of stouts. They have a stout called Tip the Cow, which is kind of their most famous. I really like their light stuff. Um, so their Session Ale, it's a very fruity, berry, tropical ale. Sounds so good. It's really easy drinking. I got a half gallon of it, and I'm about halfway through it, and it is delicious. Super easy drinking, so I would highly recommend you come try it if you ever get the chance. I was just having so Surly Heat Slayer again. I believe I had some of that the first episode, but it's a really good Kolsch. 
I think that yes. someone has already drank a beer by the Toppling Goliath Brewing Company, but I was drinking Dorothy's New World Lager, which I really enjoy. I've drank it before. I can't find a uh, alcohol content, which I'm sure matters. Oh, the one thing you need to know about Ethan is always <laughs> tell you the percentage. <laughs> you know, you gotta know the alcohol. I can't find it. Toppling Goliath is still fantastic. I'm I'm promoting single speed. Named after our founder's grandmother, Dorothy is our classic beauty. Mild in body, easygoing, and clean taste. Each sip charms the senses with distinct flavor and refreshing simplicity. Just like Grandma Dorothy, our unfiltered lager is forever dear to our hearts. How about that? All right. So with that, uh, come to Iowa, try our beer. It is all delicious. And then go to Minnesota to try Surly. Austin will get into some Iowa beers. Austin lives in Des Moines. So like he has more breweries than any of us. Oh, I have literally access to all the best beers in Iowa, but I just, and then he just will always go out of state. So that's fine. Um, it's fine. I'm a big Surly guy. They're good. Okay. So here we go. Thank God it's over. I hope you enjoyed our three-parter on Guns N' Roses. We will talk to you next episode. Thank you and good night.